I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. His uh, latest book, Off the Record, is already a national bestseller, and uh, one can see why. Peter Mansbridge collects stories from his childhood, his distinguished 50-year career as a journalist, and the history of Canada itself in those years, and recounts them in his inimitable, accessible, and engaging way that uh, made him the uh, news anchor of note in the country for over 30 years. A view onto his life and career is had in this new book, and he joins me now to look back. There were bad times, too, and his calm and clear voice took us through those. Peter Mansbridge is the former chief correspondent and anchor of The National, the CBC's flagship nightly newscast, which he anchored until 2017. He also hosted Mansbridge One-on-One, an interview program that expanded on his reporting of national and international stories that aired for many years on CBC News World. He is an officer of the Order of Canada and a distinguished fellow of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. He is the host of the daily Sirius XM podcast, The Bridge, which uh, you can get on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. His previous books were also bestsellers, Extraordinary Canadians, written with Mark Bulgich, and Peter Mansbridge, one-on-one, favorite conversations and the stories behind them. This uh, new book is published by Simon & Schuster. He joined me from his home in Stratford, Ontario. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Peter Mansbridge. Mr. Mansbridge, good morning. Hey, Joe. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Um, you know, this story about you in, in, in Churchill, Manitoba, and uh, the airport there, I, I first read that as a kid in, in uh, Fotheringham's column in McLean's. Um, and, and as I was reading it again in Off the Record, I, I kept wondering, whatever happened to that guy, Gaston Charpentier? Uh, he had a great career at the CBC. He ended up running the uh, resources section for, uh, in the news department. So I, you know, I... Uh, Obviously, I worked with him at the beginning in the northern service, but uh, by the end of his career, he was working in the same area as I was, so I, I'd see him every day. He did very well. I see, yeah. The, the refreshing thing about your book is is that there are um, very few moments, hardly any really, where you regret anything in your life. I guess, I mean, you, you, you wish that you could have told Margaret, asked Margaret Thatcher if she wrote her book, but other than that, there are very few regrets, aren't there? Listen, I was uh, incredibly lucky um, with the job I ended up in, with the career I ended up, uh, you know, traveling the world with. Uh, so it's a little, you know, would I prefer that everything went perfectly and the, the whole time? Sure, but I, that's okay. I mean, I, I had a great time uh, when I was at the National and when I was at the CBC, and I'm still having a great time now doing documentaries and speeches and writing books and, uh, you know, doing a daily podcast. Um, so I, I, I don't have any regrets. I mean, uh, there are lots of little things that I, you know, would probably have preferred went differently, but, hey, that, that's all part of life. The, the thing that I was thinking about as I was, as I was reading your book was sort of the what-ifs. Um, there was a moment there where you applied uh, to a private station, uh, CJBQ, and you didn't get the job. But, I mean, you could have easily gone into private broadcasting if, if you did get the job. And I was wondering, do you wonder how it, the career would have turned out had, had you ended up in private broadcasting as opposed to, say, the CBC for, for the rest of your career? Well, you know, the, that was very early on, right? That was around 1970, 69 or 70. Um, and if I'd gone there, I'm sure I would have worked really hard and done well, but I would have never had the opportunities I had at the CBC 
and I never could have worked my way into the what I considered was the top job of uh, you know in journalism, broadcasting journalism in uh, in Canada, which was the you know chief correspondent of CBC Television and the anchor of the National. Yeah. So um, you know that was a what if that probably wouldn't have turned out that well. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, that's the way I look at it. So CBS had offered you uh, a job twice. The first time was was uh, going to South Africa as their correspondent in Johannesburg. The, the second time was in the, the mid '80s uh, to do the morning news there. And, and Howard Stringer had said that he would get Dan Rather to call. He never did. Um, I kept wondering if, if Walter Cronkite had called. Say, w- would that have say changed your decision, perhaps? It might have. But at the same time, you've got to realize that, you know, when it got to the crunch on that job offer and the CBC decided to counter, they were offering me the job that I've been looking at since the day I started with the CBC, and it was a great opportunity. Um, the money was far greater in the States, but uh, I didn't find the journalistic challenge to be as great as the one at the CBC. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, once again, I didn't have any regrets. I mean, I make great friends in the States, still have them now. Um, and I can, you know, pick up the phone and talk to any number of different people there. Uh, some of whom I had worked with before, some of whom I would have worked with if I'd gone. Um, but they're all, uh, you know, they're, they're all good friends. Uh, but, you know, it's an interesting, you know, idea you put forward. I mean, obviously Cronkite, was special, certainly special in, as far as my uh, life was concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, not so much. But uh, if, uh, if if Cronkite had uh, been on the other end of the phone, it would have probably been awfully hard to uh, to say no. At that point, had Knowlton Nash uh, made that marvelous gesture by by asking you to stay? Had had that happened uh, yet? No, it, 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 you know we're we're talking. You know, a matter of hours here, back and forth. I see. Uh, but it, it, it was the same night that uh, Stringer was, you know, suggesting what he was suggesting was uh, eventually was the same night the, that uh, Knowlton called me after the show, after he did the show that night, and uh, and that was the you know that was the the clincher for me when he when he suggested that. Yeah, you ask in the book a, a very interesting question: uh, whether you might have done the same for somebody else. Um, right. In the in the thirty years that you were the anchor of the national, um, other than say when you did decide to go in twenty sixteen, um, was there any point where you, where you you thought you you might have wanted to to leave? Say, I mean no. that whole business with the, the prime time news you, that didn't dissuade you from the job itself. That was a disaster, uh, but it was a disaster of our collective making. You know, I, I, I don't remember any of us saying, this is a, this is crazy, why are we doing this? Why are we changing the hour, changing the name? You know, it was a, it was a difficult time. We just lost two of our biggest affiliates, uh, London and Barry, mm. uh, Ontario, uh, which together represented, you know, almost a quarter of the national's audience we they they decided to leave the cbc and they went to to ctv um which was a you know a a disastrous decision by cbc management to allow that to happen um so there was that and then on the heels of that barbara frum died Mm. so there are all these things going on 
uh, and we were having to kind of remake the show and remake our audience. And, you know, so some kind of harebrained ideas were, were put on the table. And even though some of us were, you know, we really didn't like the idea of changing the name, um, we didn't put up a big fight. You know, we, we started to put up that big fight within weeks of uh, realizing what a terrible move it had been made, and it took us a year to get things back. And the problem in, in broadcasting, especially in television, is you can lose your audience overnight. Uh, it takes you years, if ever, to get it back. Yeah. Uh, and so that was, you know, that was the challenge we had in front of us when we started fighting to get our name back and get our time back. We eventually did both. But it took us five, six years before we got our audience back. Now, I'm sure um, you know, there are people who will, uh, a lot of people have bought this book already. Um, a lot of people listen to your podcast every day. Um, and they might wonder why they don't see you on television as often as, uh, you know, not necessarily in that same role, but in other roles. Um, do you miss it at all? I mean, when, when, I mean, there must be some nights when there's a big story. Um, that you miss being there, say? Uh, not as much as I used to a few years ago. You know, it's been almost five years. There, you know, there's a whole new way of doing things in television generally, uh, and there's certainly a new landscape at, uh, at the CBC. Um, I'm still doing documentaries, which I thoroughly enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do two a year, which doesn't sound like much, but they're one-hour documentaries, and they can be on any subject I wish. Uh, and so over the the four years of doing them so far, I've been, you know, around the world. I've done uh, co-pros with other countries. Uh, I mean, it's all been, you know, exciting and new, uh, a whole new area for me. But it's also allowed me time to write books. Uh, you know, this is a bestseller. The one I wrote last year was a bestseller. Um, I do uh, speeches. I do the bod- podcast, the daily podcast with SiriusXM. Uh, and, you know, it's... I'm really busy, but it's at my pace. I, you know, I, I determine what I want to do and how I want to do it, how much time I want to spend on it, and uh, all those things are part of the, uh, <laughs> the luxury of uh, uh, of age and experience. Um, but I had said all along that uh, I was going to, not, I, I was not going to see myself doing the national with a seven in front of my age, mm. and so. In 2017, you know, I was 69 and a half or whatever it was. Um, and I, you know, I, I let them know that was it. The party was over. And, uh, and I, I felt good about it at the time. I mean, the first, first couple of weeks was strange after having been in daily news for 50 years. Um, it, it was a strange feeling, but I, you know, I got over it. I, I've always had this you know, philosophy of not looking backwards at stuff. You know, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't look backwards after the CBS thing. I didn't look backwards after, you know, any number of the different promotions I had along the route to ending up at the national. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's okay with me. And I still, you know, I look back on those, all of those times, not with wishing I was still in them, but with the, uh, you know, great uh, gratitude for having had the opportunity. 
What is it like to, to know, Peter? I mean, people must tell you this when they see you on the street or in, in any part of the country that, that you, you might end up in. People will stop you and, and recognize you. What is it like to, to when people hear, or pe- what is it like to hear when people tell you that you meant a great deal to them because that you, you took them through various events in our history? Uh, you announce deaths of, of people that are, are beloved in this country's collective memory. Um, that, that must confer, it must be nice, but it also must confer a certain responsibility or, or a burden, perhaps, does it? I wouldn't say a burden, but I would say a responsibility. And, you know, what they're really saying is that that program was really important in their lives. I mean, I do have people, a lot of people, actually, who will come up to me and said, you know, I, I, I used to sit on the couch next to my dad as a kid watching the national. That's how I started listening to news. So you've been a part of my life since I was, you know, like six, seven years old. And that's, you know, <laughs> that kind of grabs you. Mm-hmm. But you re- you realize that it's not me they're talking about. It's the experience of whatever the particular program was they were watching in their home. You know, and it, 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 in my case, it happened to be the national. Um, and so I was a part of it. You know, I've had, I've had professional hockey players, Sidney Crosby, um, say to me, I used to, you know, I used to watch you as a kid, not because I love the news, but because you kept up interrupting the hockey game. <laughs> kind of one minute bulletin in the, in the playoffs. Yeah. Um, you know, so those, you, you have to be realistic about what you're, what they're saying. Um, the ones that really, that really are touching is when you have new Canadians who come up to me, and this happens a lot and still happens, where they'll come up to me and say, you know, I, my family moved to Canada in whatever, 1994. Uh-huh. We couldn't speak a word of English. We learned English by watching you and watching the news. Now that's, that grabs you by the heart. Yeah. You go, you know, and once again, that's not about me. It's about the news um, and their their trust in, in in a particular organization, which I just happened to be, you know, fronting at the time. So those things, those do mean a lot. And, it, you know, it's very special. It also harkens back to another time. Yeah. You know, there, there's been such an explosion, as you know, in, in our in our business, in terms of the number of different newscasts that are available and the number of, you know, anchors and, you know, at, at any one particular broadcast. It's not the same as it used to be when there were only a few, you know, like it used to be just basically just Lloyd and me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right, in Canada. Yeah. And it used to be the, you know, Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather and Peter Jennings in the, in the States. Now there are lots of them. You know, lots of news anchors, and and it, you know, and, and many of them are extremely good, but it's different, uh, you know, than it was back in that era. Uh, what made you so good to watch on on television and, and impresses people still is is the appearance of being unflappable, cool on the air. Um, when was the last time that you were really nervous? Say? Oh, hey, I, you know, I would get nervous on every show. 
Really? And I would look for those, that nervous energy before a program. There was a sign that I was, you know, I was taking it seriously and, and, uh, that I was focused on, uh, on what was, what was in front of me. Um, so I, I was always a bit nervous. I mean, there's nervous and there's, you know, like shaking, sure. <laughs> shaking in your, your, your clothes, you know, and being, you know, falling over. I mean, I, I can remember the very first night I did the national, I was so nervous. I was convinced anybody watching would have seen my heart pounding through my jacket. <laughs> um, so we're not talking about like that kind of nervousness. It's just sort of being, you know, recognizing that what you do is important and, and, and wanting to make sure you do it well. The um, the one thing I noticed in, in the in the last few years that you were doing the national, you you were standing. Uh, was that your decision, or, or did you miss yep. sitting? Say, no, that was my decision. Um, you know, I, the whole sitting thing is a joke, and it, it, it's so phony, right? Like, I mean, it's a desk in a studio. It's not like you're in an office somewhere. Um, it's there. It's created as an image. Now, you know, I was a big believer in taking the show on the road, and I did it a lot, uh, whether it was, you know, in Canada or in different parts of the world. And as the technology got easier and easier to use, um, we took advantage of that. You know, I did it, you know, live from an icebreaker in the high Arctic. You know, like I did lots of different places. Um, But it's not like I took a desk with me and sat it in the middle of, you know, Afghanistan and did the news. (laughs) I stood there. Yeah. Or I stood on the icebreaker. I stood in London outside Westminster. Or I stood outside the White House. You know, and so I'm thinking, like, why am I? Why do I go back to the studio and sit at a desk? So I took a lot of heat. People made fun of it when I started. Have a look around now. How many people yeah. are standing? Yeah. In newscasts around the world. Um. You know, some still sit, sit at a conventional desk, and that you know that's. That's fine. They, they're comfortable and good for them. I just thought it was it was kind of phony. Mm. Um, but I, you know, having said that, I did sit at a desk for you know a couple of decades. Yeah. Well, one of the funnier stories in the book is is um, uh, you you talk about your mother complaining to you that there was too much royal coverage on the CBC. That's and right. and uh, that, that's a that, that's a knock that that, that you or, or 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 the the network itself has gotten over the years about too much royal coverage, but um, she ended up meeting the queen, and you never heard a peep after that, did you? <laughs> I never heard a peep. It was, it was quite correct because she was so gobsmacked. The queen was standing next to her; she couldn't talk, and the queen kept trying to engage her in a conversation. She was just she couldn't she couldn't open she couldn't move her lips, um, so eventually the queen moved on to the next person who was uh, uh, in the room. Um, but you know, listen, I, 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 I there's so much ugliness that we cover in our business mm. that every once in a while you get the opportunity to do something that was just kind of nice, whether it was a, like a wedding or a visit or something that. You know, made people excited and happy about seeing, you know, members of the royal family, and especially if it was the queen, who was our head of state. Um, I enjoyed doing those programs. You know, I, I never took them too seriously, but uh, I recognized that there were a lot of people out there who uh, 
who enjoyed that kind of programming. And they weren't necessarily big monarchists. Mm-hmm. They just kind of liked the moment. Yeah. Um, there was always questions about how much money you made, and you address that in the book. Um, did those questions, whether you know, Canada Land used to spend a lot of time talking about that. Did, did that annoy you, say? No, I don't care what they write. They never got it right anyway. Yeah. Um, every time I saw something quoted in terms of my salary, it, it wasn't. It wasn't anywhere near the uh, the truth. You know, uh, usually it was more than I was making. Sometimes it was less than I was making. Mm. Uh, but it, listen, you know, we're a public broadcaster. I just felt that I, uh, you know, I, I was allowed to have the privacy of my uh, my own income. Uh, if they wanted to, you know, petition Parliament to, uh, to get the numbers, they could do that. But uh, whenever that happened, no matter who the government, whether the government's conservative or liberal, mm-hmm. uh, the government said it was it was nobody's business, and the corporation had a right to negotiate, you know, salaries with their uh, with their employees. Oh, uh, you know, all I know is that. Well, I certainly knew how much I turned down yeah. when I said, uh, you know, I I was offered probably a half a dozen jobs by American networks uh, at different times. Um, I know I know how much I turned down in those occasions <laughs> versus how much I ended up making. But I don't want to make it sound like the CBC was not paying me very well because they were paying me extremely well. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think it helped to. Uh, the fact that they were paying me well helped a lot of others in the business who ended up making more because I was making a good dollar. Right. So, uh, you know, I have no problem with that. I, I, I know that when I left um, in 2017, left the National, mm-hmm. I was finally making in the neighborhood of what I turned down 30 years before. I see. Yeah. But you do tell us in the book how much Disney paid you for playing Peter Moosebridge, right? That's right. You know, and it, that was a big Hollywood contract, and it led to it led to Oscars and Golden Globes, and uh, and uh, I got a dollar for that. There you go. And you still you still have the dollar, don't you? I still have it. Yeah. I have the check framed on my wall. It's U.S. currency, of course, so it's actually worth a little more than a dollar. Now they did, you know, they they wanted to pay me. Uh, Mm-hmm. A considerable sum, which I thought was crazy for, I mean, I was in the film for like eight seconds or something. But, um, but they, I, I said no. And, uh, and in return, they gave that money to charity. And then they eventually called back and said, hey, you've got to take some money because it's a union uh, requirement. We, uh-huh. do, we have to pay you something. So that's how we ended up agreeing on a dollar. You, you talk about not finishing school, and I guess that's that's another regret that that comes up in in the book. Um, I was wondering as I was reading it. I mean, when your kids were of school age and they didn't feel like going in that day, what would you tell them? Go in. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, my dad used to tell me that I had to take school much more seriously, or I'd regret it for the rest of my life. Now, you know, as it turned, I, I do regret it. You're right about that. I do regret that I didn't finish high school and that I didn't go to university. Um, but for me, it turned out by a series of flukes, really, that it worked out okay for me. That if, in fact, I had gone, if I had finished high school and if I had gone to university, I, I have no idea where I would have ended up, but I wouldn't have ended up here. Mm. Um, 
because that all happened while my my old friends were in there, were in high school, were in university. Um, but you know, I told all my kids, all of whom did extremely well in school and uh, and then uh, did extremely well in university, um, that it was important. But they knew it was important. Uh, they didn't need me to tell them. Mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, they get they, they get a chuckle out of what happened to me and how I kind of lucked out. Uh, a lot of journalism students don't find it very amusing uh, what happened to me. And, you know, they sort of come into it all thinking you can go from handling bags at an airline counter in Churchill, Manitoba, and the next day <laughs> you're you're anchoring the national. I mean, it doesn't quite work out that way, or and it certainly didn't for me. But over the long term, it did. Uh, and... Uh, you know, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, I was very lucky. Yeah, and and that must be something that people ask you about because you you do talk about it in the book uh, quite a bit that that luck does play a part in your life in your career. Um, some say you can't invent luck, but I'm sure you're familiar with that Branch Ricky line where uh, he said that uh, luck is a residue of design. You must have had something guide you, say, or, or, or whether it's instinct or trust. I mean, it took you to, to these marvelous places in your life and career. Um, you must have had to listen to it, right? Well, the way I look at it is we're, we, we all have a degree of luck. And we all have a degree of being in the, you know, the right place at the right time. It's what we do with those opportunities. Like I, you know, I, it's not like I hadn't had opportunities before in my life. Uh, I had an opportunity when I was at school, and I botched it. Right? I had an opportunity when I was in the Navy, and I botched it. Um, it wasn't until that day in the airline terminal, a guy, you know, uh, seemed to think my voice was had the potential of, of making it somewhere in broadcasting, that I chose to apply myself and take advantage of the opportunity that was in front of me. Um, so, you know, luck plays a role, but the individual plays a role too, because you've got to turn luck or opportunity uh, into something. And to do that, you got to work hard. I mean, I worked really hard mm. once I got that opportunity yeah. in, in broadcasting. And, you know, I spent hours and hours um, trying. There was nobody there to teach me anything. They didn't have a newscast in Churchill. I started one on my own by listening to the shortwave radio, by listening to, um, you know, network radio on the CBC. There was no other, there was no competition in Churchill. There was not like there were other radio stations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I had to, I was self-taught. Until I, you know, for three years, until I ended up moving to Winnipeg with the CBC, and they got me into all the various really good training programs of that era that uh, occurred. Some in Winnipeg, some in Toronto, and, uh, and and that's how you know, you know, I, I worked at it and trained for the opportunities that would still come my way. In all your years at, at the CBC, um, you got to talk to everybody in this country. Was there a person who really didn't want to talk to you? A Canadian? Yeah. No. I don't think so. 
Yeah. I mean, I didn't get every request uh, granted that, sure. I, that I asked for, but it, it never seemed like a personal thing if I couldn't get somebody it was, you know, time or distance or what sure. have you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it got to the point, and it still is today. I mean, I've been doing this podcast for whatever it is now, yeah. two, almost two years. Mm-hmm. I've never had somebody say no yeah. when I uh, go for an interview. And I, you know, this is a, like a hobby this podcast uh, you know Sirius XM ended up buying it for me but the, my staff is still the same size as it was when I when it was a hobby it's me yeah you know my son occasionally uh, helps out and then some of the production stuff but um but it's it's basically me so I book everything I book the guests mm-hmm. uh and, and I book the guests by just picking up the phone and calling them or sending them an email um and so there's still, you know, and that can be whether it's the prime minister or the head of the company or, uh, you know, an actress or whatever, whatever the case may be. So, uh, um, you know, it's all, uh, you know, and that is kind of some of the same personal initiative. It's funny, everything's, you know, can sometimes go full circle, right? Mm-hmm. I'm kind mm-hmm. of doing now with this podcast what I did in Churchill. When I started that newscast, I didn't have anybody. I didn't have any staff. You know, I had to find the guests. I had to do the interviews. I had to do the edits. I had to do the writing. I did, did it all. Peter, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. I grew up watching you, obviously, like so many other people. And, and uh, the program that I grew up watching that uh, inspired me to do this was um, the, the one-on-one program that you did on, on Newsworld, as it were. Yeah, um, and I, I cannot tell you how much I learned watching you talk to people, and and if it um, rubbed off, um, um, I'm certainly grateful and and appreciate your time today. Thanks for this. Thank you, Joe. It's been a treat talking to you, and uh, you know, you, you must have. Um, I don't know whether you learned anything from watching me, but you're you're a very good interview. You get you get your guests talking, and you listen, and those are the secrets sometimes to all this. The book is called Off the Record. It's published by Simon & Schuster. Its author, Peter Mansbridge, joined me on the line from Stratford, Ontario, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunta.